Watch this. Hello and welcome back to the Cookie Jar Golf Podcast. I am not Tom Mills, I am Sam Williams, and today I'm joined by Bruce Fitzpatrick. Hello. And we've got a really special and a very exciting guest today. We've got, uh, I guess you could probably call him the rock star of greenkeeping. We've got Paul Larson from Royal St. George's ahead of a very big week next week. Paul, welcome to the Cookie Jar Golf Podcast, and how are you doing? Well, thanks for having me. Rock star, blimey. Well, we build you. We build you as a rock star now, so you're going to have to live up to expectations. No, they're getting your ears sorted out. We're doing well, actually. Very good. Yeah. Good. How are the nerves holding up ahead of next week? Before we dive into it, are we? Are you looking forward to it? Is it a, a nerve-wracking few weeks now? Everything's set. It, do you know? If, I don't know about nerves. It's more uh, we're so busy at the moment. Um, so obviously, we've got no golf from. Uh, yesterday onwards so it's quite good so we can get a lot done in a week without anyone here but it's just doing everything all the little jobs that you want to do and it's sort of me sort of moaning at the lads a little bit come on we've got to get this done and that done and so we're doing quite a few long hours and everything it's more them final bits that you want to get right and kind of lowering the higher car on fairways and aprons, tees, things like that. So it's just regular cutting, uh, going out, looking at, I don't know, the odd weed or, or something, you know, just little finesse stuff. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, we're going to dive into talking about the course shortly. I think it'd be really helpful, Paul, just before we do, so our listeners understand a little bit about your history in the game and your career to date. I, am I right in thinking you've been at St. George's for about 10 years or so now? Yeah, um, so I could write a book on what I've done as a career one, so I'll have to induce it all in a few minutes. Um, yeah, I've been here for 10 years. Uh, I was here as an assistant. Basically, I was a greenkeeper in 2000 I started. Uh, I've done many jobs before that. I was a postman, worked for solicitors, went backpacking around the world, travelled around Europe, done all sorts of jobs to funds, doing all that travelling and everything. But the one thing through it all was I was always a golfer. So I played golf from 13, 14, played sort of Kent stuff quite a bit. Uh, and then it got to a point one day where I was living in London and just wanted to sort of come back to Folkestone where I sort of have lived most of my life uh, on and off. So the job where I played golf, uh, the course where I played golf, uh, they offered me a job as an apprentice greenkeeper in my 30s or 30 or something like that I was. And uh, I took it, bought a van, did a load of odd jobs as well, landscaping and all the rest of it. And then before you know, in 2005, I was an assistant greenkeeper here at Royal St. George's. Uh, so I did that for two years. And then I went to Holland, ended up being the head greenkeeper of a golf course called Wester Park uh, near Den Haag. So I, did, so I left there in 2011 to come back here for the Open. So quite weird how I was back in time. It's now 10 years apart. And uh, I was deputy for the last Open. So in 2012, I then took over as head greenkeeper. So that is <laughs> a very wow. quick overview. 
So I guess kind of nice to have a little bit of exposure there to the Open, you know, back in 2011, wasn't it, when Darren Clark obviously won. I've got to ask, because obviously, you know, reflecting on the last 12 months events, you've got everything that's happened with the pandemic. And I think we initially kind of reached out about a year ago or so when when everything happened with the with the open cancellation, when everything was kind of, um, you know, crumbling around us with, with the pandemic. I mean, just take us back to 12 months ago, because that must have been pretty crushing, not just for you, but for all of your team in terms of getting a course ready. It's a long, long exercise. It doesn't happen in a week. Um, you know, just take us back to last year and how that was with the cancellation. Yeah. So obviously it was more than a year ago when we it was uh, we had the pandemic in March, wasn't it? March, April. So it was, but you know what? I, I always say this to people, wasn't, the open sort of went out, out, out of your mind for a while because I put everyone on furlough. There was only four people there, me as well. We were just keeping the course going. We had all the guidelines we had to adhere to. Uh, and it was quite strict at the time, the first time round, where it was essentially just keep the golf course alive. But we had the heat wave. So basically, we were just hand warring for most of the time. Uh, and then, to be fair, quite quickly, the RNA did sort of postpone the Open. Uh, luckily, we were informed it was going to be carried over a year. So I think that really helps uh, sort of ease your mind that we were going, not going to lose it and everything, because there was all sorts of rumours going around. So fair play to the RNA, they sort of quashed all them quite quickly. And then after that, the mindset was a we how healthy we are going to be. Life was the mindset. How are we going to get through all this and are we going to return to normal? All these lockdowns, we never knew. It's really hard to plan. It's hard to think of anything when you were going through what we're all going through and sort of still going through. But to be fair, golf opened up, which was quite good. Uh, we had a couple of big competitions, uh, for the members and also for the ladies where we had the Rose Series, which coincided with when we should have had the Open. So we had a lot to focus our mind on. And then basically, I think when we got that out of the way, we led into winter, another lockdown. Uh, but this time we got all the guys in and uh, we've done so much work during winter with, you know, while uh, there was no golf and everything. It really helped, but our minds really was focused from last July, August at this time, in a way. It's quite hard to have your mind sort mm. of goes through different thought processes. How does that sort of timeline look really, Paul, when, you, when it comes to getting the course ready for the Open? And I guess you, the sort of big capital projects were, were probably yeah. carried out and done by the time that the pandemic hit. Um, in, in March and golf was sort of shut down. So is it just a case of, as you say, kind of keeping the golf course in a in a semi-respectable state, really, and playable for the members? And and then when does the sort of the real lead up to getting it open ready, when does that really kick in? Yeah, I mean, a, a very good question because really uh, we got ready for the open in 2013, 2014 when I did a conversion of the grasses from uh, oh, wow. Rye Yorkshire Fog tried to get the fescue back in so i've got a blend of fescue bent greens but we did the tees we did fairways uh, we changed the shape of some bunkers put some natural bunkers in took the 
made the Himalayas bunker on the 4th with all the sleepers around it. We made that a rough-style bunker. So we were heading for the Open many years in advance with what we wanted to do. And then we had the amateur in 2017, which was uh, was almost where was where I want to be for the Open. And then it was a case of we'll just refresh maybe 60, 70 bunkers leading up to the Open. So that was a sort of long-term plan. Then uh, we had the drought in 2018. And my biggest devastation for me was the drought. That's preoccupied me more than... Uh, is that the right word with the pandemic? That was more hard to take mentally when we lost a lot of the good grasses. So it became quite a rush. We've had two sort of stages. Uh, so from 2018 in the autumn leading to the spring of 2019, it's about being reintroducing them fescues, uh, lots of top dressing, lots of overseeding, lots of hand dressing. Uh, so it's it's, it was a definitely an unusual build-up to an Open because normally you'd think you, you're just sort of finessing everything and redoing the bunkers leading up to the Open. It shouldn't be that much of a big deal. And we always used to pride ourselves. We could have the Open any time. Uh, so leading from this onwards, where we are, we probably could uh, as long as we don't lose grass cover like we did in eighteen. So yeah. that's yeah, interesting. I, I didn't know that. I, di I didn't know yeah. that you would that the drought would kind of kill off some of that. You're trying to change the grass type that sits in there, and you know clearly the drought then just basically resets you back. I'm guessing three four years straight away, doesn't it? Yeah, it was. Do you know what? Mentally, for me, it's probably career wise in what you're trying to do and what you're trying to achieve and everything. To see how it all went like that was it was it was quite tough to take. And uh, people coming in and going, oh, have you seen the fairways that George's there? You know, they've lost the fairways. What I quite liked is I didn't uh, not publicise it. I let people know this is how we were struggling down here because the southeast was really here. There's loads of courses that struggled in 2018. It didn't matter who you were. You didn't have enough water. It, it was going to be tough. But what we did is, you know, you've got to get a different mindset. And our mindset was we've done it before. We killed the grasses off to get the fescue back. Can we do it again, but in a quicker time scale? Because we knew, uh, you know, obviously we thought the open was going to be in 2020. So we had 18 months to, to get it ready. It was looking quite good last year. We would have achieved what we wanted to, but with that extra year gone by, I think I've got the fairways and the semi-rough even better than they were last year with that extra year. It's allowed me to get it back to where I want it. I don't think it's as good as it was before 2017 on some of the finer grasses, but some of the other things, the bunker tops, uh, the tees have come back just as good, if not better. So it's, I always look at it, I call it like a little rom-com film, a Hugh Grant sort of thing where you go out with a girl, your best mate comes over, nicks the girl, you're devastated, <laughs> then you meet her again and it's all happy ever after. So you never know. Two weeks' time we'll find out. I love, it. I love the analogy. And I, I think a lot of our listeners, certainly for many, and particularly those overseas, their only experience of Royal St George's will be you know, seeing it in things like the Open in 2011. Kind of what's your take looking back 10 years or 
yeah, ten years ago now to the last last open there in terms of how the course will look different. Is there any major changes to some of the holes that are worth mentioning? Will it be playing tighter off the tee? Will it be more penal in terms of the rough? What's your what's your kind of verdict on that at the moment? Yeah, um, I've been watching some of the open uh, podcasts and where they showed some highlights of the open from twenty eleven. Greatest difference, I think, is the naturalness of the golf course now. Like uh, 11 and 16, the par threes, even a six. Well, we've allowed all the carries to grow up. We've let the rough grow up. Before, we used to calm down. They, they were quite sure, and they, didn't, they had no character to them. So we've added all these wildflowers, bare wild grasses, you know, sweet vernal grasses, the fescue, the bearing grasses. It just looks like it's a golf course within a June now. It looks more natural. Uh, we're a triple SI site. Uh, we were unfavourable when I took over. We're now favourable. We've got the wildflowers everywhere. We've got the orchids everywhere. So just from a visual point of, of view, I think when you look at it, you're going to notice the difference. And it doesn't matter what I've done to the bunkers, uh, the tees or the greens. That's the first thing that grabs your, your your eye. So I think that's the thing that everyone's going to notice. It just looks, to me, I don't even know if I can compare anymore. To me, I actually think it does look so much nicer. Um, the tees, you know, the fairway's been uh, more fescue-dominated now. The lies will be tighter. Um, it's, it's more of a... A definite more of a links course how it should be um, is the easiest thing I can say. What does that um, sort of dialogue with the RNA look like, Paul? When when it comes to you know deciding you want to make some changes to the course and you're on the open rotor, is there is there quite a bit of, of dialogue there when it comes to you know saying we want to we want to change some of the grass types, um, we want to maybe change some of the aesthetics and and the look of some of the carries and the visuals on the par three? Do they allow you to kind of have maybe sort of free reign with that? Um, and to what extent does the sort of, the kind of playing, um, how the course plays, does that weigh into the decision-making process? I guess the last couple of opens at George's, the, the course has been a, a pretty stern test. I think Curtis won on one under in 2003 and Darren Clark was was five under in 2011. So it's definitely been one of the highest scoring open venues. Um, does all of that kind of play into the dialogue with the RNA and how you go about making course changes? Yeah, uh, to be fair, uh, almost everything we do is in dialogue with the RNA. So when I did the uh, the grass changes and the species change, uh, we basically tell them what we're doing. We didn't have any major competitions on for a few years, so it was a great time to do it because we didn't have the amateur until 2017. So the key was always to make sure you got it done and ready for the big events and everything. So in 2011, I worked um, with Alistair Beggs, who's basically the r have got their own agronomy team now with um, Adam and uh, Richard Windows. But we worked, I've worked with them over the years. So when they sort of change the r I'm always in contact with them. And we do a lot of course walks. Uh, so any changes we do to the course, we always discuss with them. I don't think, as a club, the club have wanted to make changes as well. And the RNA tend to agree with what we've done because it's generally better for the, for the, for the course. 
so it's definitely a joint team effort. We won't just do something without asking many more. And most of the time they'll agree with me or say, oh, we'd, maybe we'll do that another time. But everything, we seem to be working quite well in unison at the moment. So all my plans, we know the course well. Uh, they don't they don't see it up close, so they rely on us, you know, our local knowledge of how it's going to perform and everything. But leading up to the event, uh, they kind of take over, you could say, for the last two weeks. Um, right. They'll want the green speed. Whatever green speed they want is up to them. Uh, so we'll help them get to them green speeds. Uh, hopefully we've got everything at the right heights before they get here. Uh, but they may want little adjustments, which we will do as we get nearer to the time. Uh, so they'll turn up next week. So they're here a week before the practice round. So in that week, we'll go around, look at everything, and just make sure everything's how they want it. So it is, in effect, it is their tournament for the last two weeks. And do they bring in essentially their own green staff, full-time green staff, part of the agronomy team to to sort of supplement? the team that, that you run there and you kind of work together essentially on a, on a, on a shared program really of, of work just to get it ready in that final week or 10 days before the, the tournament starts. Yeah, they, they'll have other agronomists with them. So they'll do a lot of testing, you know, the stem, the smoothness, tuners, all that sort of stuff. Uh, so they'll have their own team for that. We do, I bring in extra guys to help work. Um, normally we do bring in call, uh, bring keepers from the other open courses, but, with the COVID this year, that's another thing that's been very difficult uh, to organise and get right. So none of the other open courses are coming here to, to help us just because we're trying to keep it to locals, uh, people, everyone is staying off-site. Normally everyone stays on-site, but everyone's having to leave and come in in the morning. Uh, so it's been run very differently. So I've got like 20 local volunteers from all the local golf courses uh, which is, you know what, it's great. I used to play a lot of Ken stuff and the East Kent golf courses are all here. We've got um, Char Hills, Steam Valley, um, Broome Park, Stoney, all the local courses, they've got, they're sending someone to work here. So it's going to be novel for them because they won't have seen anything like this. Uh, we've got a few outside guys coming to help us as well. So I've got, with my team, we've got nearly 45 people. Uh, so we should have enough to do everything we want. I mean, I guess it's quite tricky, isn't it? Having that relationship where you, you know, you'll have a, a very, after, after 10 years, you'd think a very intimate understanding of how the course responds to, to the weather, the local conditions, you know, ground temperature, all of that kind of stuff. And, and then I can imagine it's like your baby two weeks out where it's sort of, you have to relinquish a little bit of control. I mean, uh, you know, I can imagine myself in that scenario finding that quite quite a difficult thing. But I suppose, you know, you've you've kind of got to just turn it over and let them kind of do their thing. How, what's the what's the aftermath? I'm interested because, you know, particularly in the US, you know, it's no secret that to achieve the stimp speeds they do on the greens, they've really got those things on life support, haven't they? Through the through the weekend when that when they're playing. Is it really easy to kind of just pick up where, where you leave off from the open and kind of resume, you know, another a first class course from Monday for the members to enjoy? You know, what's the what's the aftermath look like? Yeah, I mean, yeah, another good question. And just going back to the first bit. So in them two weeks when the hour and they come down, I must stress that we will all work together. 
So they will ask for our input on what we don't just let you go and they just do it. <laughs> Here's the case. Here's the case to the yeah. John Deere. Up you go. Yeah, they, uh, so they might want it. Uh, it. To be fair, we'll all meet up and we walk the course together and we agree a plan with all of us. Like this year, they basically, I gave them my plans and they just said, yeah, that's what we're going to do. And we go for it. So it is definitely a team game. And I don't think they'd do anything that I wasn't comfortable with doing. Um, we'd be in agreement to do it. Leading on for the aftermath, very good question. Uh, obviously, with Fescue Dreams, we we don't want to cut too low because we could lose the Fescue content in the Greens. Uh, so, so far, we're very mindful of that. So... Uh, I don't think it's going to be a problem. And I I looked at Port Rush last year, and obviously I'll speak to Graham and the aftermath after it finished. He said the Greens were under a fair bit of stress because uh, there's quite a lot of hand cutting. They don't like doing too much rolling. But he said, you know, give it a few weeks, everything was back to normal and looking quite good again. So... We're not, we're not shaving them down. And of course, there's in America where they're cutting down, I don't know, they might be two mil, two and a half mil, they're drying them out. They're really stressing them out, aren't they? Um, with the fescue here, we don't really have to do that to get the speed. So I'm hoping we don't go down that road. So we, on that Monday, Tuesday afterwards, it's carry on as normal. And I guess from, from what you're saying there, Paul, I mean, not to labour the comparisons with American courses in the USGA too much, but I guess the un- uninitiated and a lot of people who watch golf will hear that the USGA might say, for example, the US Open, they want the winning score to be around about par. I mean, is there that similar kind of goal in mind when when the RNA are involved here looking at the Open? Or is there, I guess, an element of, well, a lot of it's determined by the weather and if the wind blows and okay, yeah. we might try and bring some of the, the fairways in and pinch them a bit tighter and move some of the pins into trickier spots, but we don't really have that much control over what the winning score is going to be because that, that ultimately depends on the wind. Yeah. Um, yeah, actually, to be fair, we don't, even from tournaments I've worked in the past, they've never been obsessed with the score. You're right, they're not, they haven't got a score set in mind. It's... Uh, they will put tricky pins out if they have to. If that's your only defence and there's no winds, good weather, that might be the only thing you can do. But we don't want them to be stupid, like. So, uh, you know what? If someone takes it apart and they win, uh, and they're 18 under, so be it. For me, you know what? For me, I'm not 100% fussed about the winning score, personally. As a greenkeeper, I just want them to know that the course is in the best possible condition it can be in and do you know what say they annihilate and it's too short for them and all the rest of it that's for something after to think about but at that week for me it really is just trying to get the condition right um the rna's job that's up to them to decide how hard they want to make it they want to move tees back or forward it tends to be quite tough it's always windy so I think as long as the wind blows, I don't expect them to, to to find it too easy. How have you handled rough management? Because, I mean, you know, again, I can imagine you're building a course that's got to be playable for your metal golfers 51 weeks a year this year. But then you've got to think about Bryson, you know, taking down 370-yard-plus drives around the course. 
there really is only kind of one major threat off the tee, and that's obviously going to be the dunes and the rough. How have you handled rough management? Have you had to push the thickness to the point where it's it's become a little bit trickier for the club golfer, or have you? Again, is it kind of back to that point where well, we just want to protect this for the members and leave it a little bit more, leave it a little softer, perhaps, and just hope the conditions come in and make it tougher for the pros? How, how do you balance those things? Yeah, well, that's a very good question because um, we, I always cut and bail the rough uh, generally in the winter, so it's quite short and it makes the grass more wispy for the next year. Um, in 2011, we did this, and the grass didn't really grow back uh, as good as we wanted it to um, in the springtime. So, luckily enough, in 2011, it grew at the last minute. We had a bit of rough, and it, it kind of worked out quite well. But this year, to stop us having no rough, we never cut the rough back the year before. But the weird thing is, obviously, we thought we had the open in 2020, so we didn't cut the rough back in 2019. So we let it grow, and then obviously last year we didn't cut it back again. So it's almost three years where we haven't cut and bailed, which obviously means uh, the rough is a little bit more juicy. Um, leading into spring, we had no rain in April, did we? And then May we suddenly hit us with rain. Very lush, wasn't it? In May, it, it really it kind was. of changed it. And June as well. June has been incredibly wet. Uh, it, could say in a good way but it's made the rough has really come up and the point you made about the members and everything if you're in the rough and the members it's no-go zone at the moment mm-hmm. um so i think when the players come here they're going to have a stern test and that is the balance i would rather have the rough much more wispy i think it's still wispy but i think it's a little bit thick at the bottom um but that is the defence against these good golfers. And the one thing everyone's been asking me, have you got that rough up? They, I think they want to see the pros. If they hit it in the fairway, they they pay the price for it. What we have done, we've got a first and second cut. And the second cut's been allowed to grow a little bit longer. So if you hit any part of the fairway, you will stop being either the first or second cut. But if you fly the ball into the rough, you pay the price, you will take whatever lie you get. Um, so it should be a stone challenge this year. Muirfield adopt that model, don't they, pretty much all year round in terms of, you know, they don't do a lot of th- thinning to the rough and, you know, the same could be said as some other ones, but, you know, we play quite a bit of links golf on our travels and, you know, for a rank amateur like myself, it doesn't half improve playability. So you can kind of see how, you know, it's really going to test them when, when, when they're in a position to, to lose a lot of balls and stuff. So, um, yeah, I think that's a really interesting insight. What, what's the, is there kind of a, a kind of a big fear of the week ahead? Is there anything where you're thinking, you know, could the wind get up to a certain point? Could, um, you know, is there anything in there where you're thinking, do you know what, you know, we're, we're kind of keeping our fingers crossed for this? No, I mean, and going back to rough, I'm like you. I hate looking for balls in a rough. I want to find it and be able to get out of it. Mm. But that doesn't mean I need to hit the green. It means I can just at least wedge it out. And that's always been my goal here, is to make the rough fair. And you asked earlier about how a course plays a little bit between the members and the pros, getting that balance right. Well, the rough is the balance. And if you can get that right, you feel like you can hit it further than you can, but the club tangles round and really the effort is just to get it out. But I don't want people going in the rough and not finding your ball. Slows play yeah. down and all the rest of it. 
So as soon as the Open's over and we get in season, or when we're allowed to cut and collect, they'll be cutting that all down and thinning it out for next year. So they may have to suffer a little bit for this year. But in hang-ups for the course, there's nothing uh, really... The one thing I was... My own little thing is I don't like fairy rings. Uh, so I don't want to see too many fairy rings on the greens. So that's my thing. The secret, we use a lot of wetting agent. Uh, and we try and keep moisture control very steady throughout the whole year. So the last thing you want is it, if it gets too wet and then it dries down too quick, that tends to uh, you see some fairy rings come through. So I have a garden irrigation is really good on that. So that's my biggest fear. But at the moment, we're on top of it. And those cameras don't lie at the end of the day. It's bloody 4K uh, television you've got now, Paul. Yeah, and you see the drone from above. You will see it. We, <laughs> we have got a few. I Funny, I was walking across with Ken Brown not so long ago, and I told him about the fairy ring and that. And he said, I really don't care about fairy rings. <laughs> it's part of Ling's golf, and I, it doesn't say anything to me. But I think there's a few of us Ling's greenkeepers who just would prefer not to see them. Talking about the, the course itself, Paul, um, what holes do you think sort of stand out as being particularly significant or, or holes that where you think players could potentially um, yeah, win or, or lose the Open? Uh, uh, I mean, the, the best holes, uh, the tough holes, four, four's always a beast. Um, eight again into the wind, so hard the second shot into that green. And for me, I'm not the greatest golfer, but 15's a tough hole here in that green. It's always into the wind when I play it. So they're the ones. Uh, my favourite holes at the moment have become the par threes. Just to be fair, with the stands wrapped around them, especially 16, it looks like a different hole. Uh, and you think it's an easy hole, really. Uh, but you miss getting them bunkers or Bjorn's bunker on 16. Um, they've got a great big stand overlooking it now. It's going to be a little bit nerve-wracking. You have to get down in two from there. Um, it's one of them courses, I suppose people will say 14 is the hole where you could lose your score, you hit it out of bounds. But it's just one of them courses where you get in trouble, any hole can catch you out. And I always think, except a one shot, if you've had a bad shot, except you're going to get a bogey. But if you try and be clever, you tend to get a seven or even worse. So it mm. really is just be patient. Every hole, just treat it as an individual. There's no one hole, I don't think, that gets you absolutely quaking on that one, one hole and you just want to get through it. I think all the holes, you know, you just got to keep it straight. I think that's what major golf courses do well in general, don't they? Is they all require patience. So, whereas you'll see some stuff on the regular tour stops where, you know, there's a couple of real kind of mind bending golf holes. You always, almost always, I seem to find with the majors now that they're courses where they're fairly relentless and you just got to be very patient. And the player that kind of pushes to attack and, and doesn't accept a bogey when, when, when they're kind of, when the chips are down is probably the one that's, you know, going to come unstuck pretty quickly. Um, Paul, you've been really, really giving of your time in terms of talking about it. I'm kind of curious to know, as someone who's been through, you know, two Opens now at Royal St George's, what's the long-term plan for you? What's, you know, what's next after the Open? Ah, uh, well, yeah. 
Um, I haven't really got a long-term plan at the moment. Um, I've got plenty of long-term views. I want to get the course better after the Open. I'd like to get more fescue into the greens and get a little bit of bent grass out of them. Uh, There's little projects like that that I want to do, but um, we'll just have to wait and see. I don't really... I live for the day. I don't really sort of plan too much of what I might do in the future. We never know. So we just... uh, Hopefully, I can install things I want to get done. It's, it never change, It never stays the same. There's always stuff to do, but you can always make it better. And there's a lot more I can do to make it better in my mind. So, yeah, that's a definite straight back um, answer. But um, we'll just have to see. I love it here. The guys, I've got to stress uh, the team. I've never worked with a better bunch of lads like in it. Basically, they do the work, uh, and they've been brilliant. So it's just good fun coming to work. You know what? Going through this pandemic, it's very tough, and it? it's very tough on everyone. And I think of the secret of British people: we don't lose our sense of humour. We've got that um, sarcasm, sense of humour that we have that we can't lose it, and that, that's what keeps everything fun. Brilliant. Well, I, I, I do think you know. Hopefully, I'm not. Uh, you know, I think I think certainly from my point of view, um, the one that people are looking forward to seeing the most is the Open. Two years without an Open feels like far too long, and um, I'm sure everyone's going to be kind of pulling for you and making sure you know the course. You know, is no doubt going to be knockout uh, for the Open uh, in, in a couple of weeks' time, and we wish you all the very best with it. But Paul, thank you so much for joining the podcast. It's been awesome catching up with you, and great kind of getting a bit of first-hand views on that stuff that I think. Um, yeah, it's really rare to kind of to hear someone talking so candidly about the course and everything. So a big thank you. Oh, thank you. Cheers. You're welcome. Watch this.